Our scripture today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, and can be found on page 1648 on your pew Bibles. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother had said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from between 20 and 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. I don't know a whole lot about animals. Um, I didn't really have pets growing up. But one thing I've heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that a lot of under animals don't understand pointing. Certain animal animals are smart enough that if they see you pointing somewhere, they'll look along your fingers to something else and understand you. But some animals just stare at your finger as if your entire message is, hey, cool, look at this finger. Now, obviously, what Jesus did here is really cool. But when the book of John talks about miracles, he calls them signs. And he says pretty explicitly in chapter 20 that the point of these miracles or signs isn't to say, wow, look at all these cool things that Jesus did. I really like cool things. Let's talk about how cool that miracle is. As amazing as Jesus' miracles really are, as obvious as it makes it that um, Jesus really has God with him, the point of the miracles goes well beyond the miracle itself. You can see it even in the way that Jesus acts about them. If the point was the miracle itself, you would think that you would stand there and say, stand back and be amazed. The water we now use has just become wine. Tell all your friends about this ultimate water into wine bonanza. No, this is why John calls the miracles signs, because they point to a much deeper and more beautiful truths, which you only understand once you've gotten to the end of the gospel. It's the same way that when you drive on the highway and there's a sign that says that the next exit has a Bob Evans, the point of the sign isn't the sign itself. You don't look at the sign at the road and think, wow, look at the incredible craftsmanship on that sign. Let me pull over so I can really admire the red color of that Bob Evans logo and the interesting font choice. I could sit here for hours looking at this Bob Evans sign. No, the whole point of the Bob Evans sign is that it points you to the real Bob Evans restaurant that's down the road. As cool as the sign is, and I'm sure it's a pretty cool sign, you're not supposed to be just satisfied with looking at the logo, 
when you can find the real Bob Evans and eat there and really experience the fine dining experience that is Bob Evans. <laughs> it's the same way with the signs in John's Gospels. The miracles are a finger pointing to something that's deeper about Jesus and his kingdom. And the finger is cool, but we're not supposed to spend our time looking at the finger as much as what the finger is pointing to. So how we understand this sign of the water turning into wine is really dependent on a few important verses that frame the miracle, both at the beginning and at the end of the passage. First, at the beginning of the passage, Mary tells Jesus that they ran out of wine at the wedding. And Jesus says something surprising. Dear woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It doesn't seem like a big deal to help out with the wine, but it really is one. And as readers, we're meant to ask why. So far, Jesus has already been introduced to this story as the Messiah, the King of Israel. One of the prophecies that everyone looked forward to was the day when the Messiah would finally defeat all the enemies of Israel so that the whole world would be set right. And on that day, as a celebration of the Messiah's victory, the people of Israel would join in on a giant feast. It will be like Israel renewing its marriage vows with God. If Jesus really is the Messiah, it seems like he's saying he's holding out on this wedding feast until the right moment, when he is fully glorified and recognized as the rightful king of the world, sitting at the right hand of God himself. And think about just how happy the mood of this story is. The relationship between Jesus and his mother is actually hilarious. Mary says they have no wine, and she doesn't even need to say, you need to do something about it. Jesus just knows exactly what she's saying. You're the son of God. You could totally do something about this if you wanted to. Then Jesus basically says no, but Mary, knowing her son, knows that he really will do something about it and says to the servants, just do what he tells you to do. And of course he does it. It's just such a profoundly human relationship between the son of God and his mother. But when you continue reading John's gospel, you find something surprising that gives new meaning to what Jesus is saying. But it's also surprising, it's something that when you recognize it, it really breaks the mood of this story. The word hour, when he says, my hour has not yet come, is constantly used in the book of John for Christ's death on the cross. There's a bunch of examples, but here's a few of them. In John 13, 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Or in John 8, 20, no one arrested Jesus because his hour had not yet come. Now, this seems totally different from what we originally expected, right? At first, we were thinking that this was a lighthearted story that gave us a quick signpost to the final fulfillment of Jesus' role as the Messiah, where he shares in a feast that marries the whole world back to God. But looking back, we now know that it's actually pointing to something terrible that you can't even quite look at, even if you tried. It's pointing towards Jesus' death on the cross. Wine is a symbol in John's gospel of Christ's blood. It makes sense considering what it looks like. And it's something that is most obvious in communion in John, where Jesus said, this wine is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. See, what John is doing, which is something he's constantly doing in his gospel, is playing with our expectations. He knows that the first thing that his original readers will think of is they would think about a Messiah feasting at a wedding which is the final victory of Israel over her enemies. But then he redirects you to Jesus' death on the cross. And it's not the only time that John does this. Practically every time that you think you're being pointed to Jesus being glorified 
and everyone recognizing how amazing he is, you find that you're actually being pointed to the cross. Glory, cross, glory, cross, glory, cross. I've sounded like a conspiracy theorist this whole message with strings of yarn going all over my wall, but it adds up to this. What it means in the Gospel of John for Christ to be glorified, for him to be honored, for him to show what God really looks like, is for him to go to the cross. It's not for him to sit on a fancy throne and to be waited on hand and foot. It's not for him to be honored above everyone else. No, it's to go to the most shameful place that anyone could possibly go. It's to be humiliated and half-naked, tortured on a cross, and to cry, it's finished. What it really means for Christ to have his wedding banquet with his new kingdom, where all the world is conquered, where the incredible gulf between God and humanity is destroyed, is not that he sits at the head of the table. It's not that he eats the most incredible foods while all his enemies lay dead at his feet. No, Christ's wedding banquet looks like a simple meal in the upper room with his poor disciples saying, this bread is my body broken for you, and this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink all of you in remembrance of me. The fine foods and wine of the Messianic feast is nothing more than the very life of Christ given for us. So as crazy as it sounds, when you really recognize what John is doing, you see there isn't much of a difference between being glorified and going to the cross. In fact, when you have the right eyes formed by the gospel, you recognize that they're the exact same thing. There's nothing more glorious than giving up your very life and love for your people. What it truly looks like to be the king of the world is for Christ to radically give up his life for the world. And scandalously, what it really means to be a citizen of this kingdom is for us to radically give up our lives for the sake of the world. So what this tells us is that the gospel has a completely different way of seeing glory than we normally see. And that has a real impact on how we live our lives. It requires us to take on a completely different mindset. When you're choosing who you're going to hang out with, you might have a temptation to only hang out with the kinds of people that will help your reputation. Certain people seem more honorable. Maybe they have money they could hand out. Maybe they can get you a job. It seems like a great strategy. Whatever the case, everyone wants a great reputation. Now, the message you'll get in a lot of movies and TV shows these days is that you shouldn't worry about the social class or cliques that people live in. You should just hang out with people that you can have fun with. It's especially true in teen movies. You know, the main character will always have certain friends that she can actually have fun with and other friends that can help her reputation, and she needs to choose between the two. The message is to hang out with the people you can have fun with. And that's a good message, and it's the kind of message that made America unique for a few centuries in this world, while Europe still had formal aristocracies. But the difficulty is that just hanging out with people you can have fun with also leads to a kind of hierarchy. It hasn't replaced hierarchies entirely. It's just created a new one. Because that's the case whenever you have any values in a society at all. If you hang out with people you have fun with, that means that certain people will have a lot more people to hang out with because certain people are just simply more fun than others. Some people are interested in talking about sports. Other people are interested in talking about 16th century cavalry tactics. Generally, the person who likes talking about sports will be seen as more fun, and so they will have more people to talk to. 
Some people are able to make anything sound interesting. Other people have a t dry tone of voice. Other people hardly talk at all. Again, some people will have more fun with others. And that's the truth that we all know, but have a hard time saying. What Jesus calls us to is actually different from either of those. Many traditional societies said, hang out with who can help your reputation. Modern Western culture says, hang out with who you can have fun with. But Jesus calls us to hang out with those who need, you need your love. And it's a radical change from both mindsets. Because it calls us to be thinking about the interests of others at all times. It tells us that we're not really our own, but we belong to God. And for that reason, it's good and right and just for us to give up our own interests to serve our neighbor, particularly one that needs love. Because ultimately, that's what it means to be human. It's even what it means to be a self. From the very beginning, before the world was even created, God lived as a trinity, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gave up their interests and in love for one another. Even before humans existed, all selves existed to give themselves up in love for one another. And this didn't change when the world was created. In fact, it intensified. The perfect Son of God became a human for our sake and for our salvation. He suffered and died for us and showed, up, showed us that what it means to be a self, as always, was to give up yourself. Everything you own and everything you are is meant to be given away, to be used to bless others. What this means is that the path to true fulfillment isn't in seeking fulfillment at all. We spend an incredible amount of time in our society trying to figure out who we are and what we're all about. We try to come up with some meaning in our lives. But you'll never actually see that meaning until you give up looking for it in yourself. Why? Because looking for fulfillment in yourself is like staring at a mirror right in front of the Grand Canyon. There's a wealth of new and beautiful meaning to be found if you look outside of yourself, if you seek the fulfillment of others. You'll find incredible meaning if you're drawn out of yourself to praise God, the only thing that actually deserves your praise. You're most yourself when you're given away. And of course this is true. Humans are social creatures. A human is not fully a human when a human is left alone. A human is most a human when it's in community just like a fish is most a fish when it's in water. What this means is that you need to find a Christian community that loves you and one that you feel happy to love back. I really feel like this church is good at that, at being a family where we look out for each other's needs more than our own. But if this church isn't the one that loves you, and if you don't feel like you can love this church, find one that loves you and that you can love. Because this is vital, even more than important than the health of one church. This is fundamental what, to what it means to be human. You were made to live in a community that loves you and, th and that you can love. And, something that means, and sometimes that means going through hard times together. Because sticking through hard times is one of the best ways to show love. But the love is absolutely essential. Christianity is not a solo sport. Now, this is played out constantly in the history of the church, too. The church was most itself when it recognized a mission outside of itself, when it recognized that God was calling it to love those around them, when they went into plague-infested cities and they took care of the poor while those who could afford it ran for the hills. 
when they suffered and died in loyalty to Jesus, when they traveled the, war, the world and spread the science of disease and new ways of producing things to lift people out of poverty. The church has least been the church, ironically, when it has tried to protect itself, when it decided to hunker down and weather the storm, when it's tried to preserve its own institutional legitimacy and power, when it's tried, when the essence of what it means to be the church is to be a community of people giving up their own interests in love and service to others. The more we hold on to our own interests, the more they slip through our fingers, the more we transformed into something we were never meant to be. So how do we live like that? We all know that every part of us revolts against this understanding. The whole world wants us to see glory as climbing all over each other and fighting each other to be honored. So how do we actually live like Jesus did? How do we see glory completely differently from how the world sees it? And the answer is found in this passage too. In verse 6, Jesus takes jars that were supposed to be used for Jewish purification rituals, and instead he uses them to make wine. Jesus, they could have just said, Jesus took some, took some jars, but he makes a point of saying that they were used for Jewish purification rituals. When you remember that wine is meant to be a sign that points to Christ's blood, you see that Jesus is sending a very specific message here. Jesus is replacing the old Jewish purification rituals that made people clean on the outside for a new, new purification that's found in his own blood. Those old purifications were not enough to really fundamentally change the Jewish people so they could live up to the different kind of glory found in God's kingdom. So Christ had to implement something better. It is only by being washed in the blood of Jesus that we can be purified to live according to the example that he has set. We have been supernaturally cleansed. And we have a new and better covenant sealed by God's Holy Spirit that's constantly enabling us to live a completely different life. So continue to pray and keep on praying that God would supernaturally empower you to love others and to love God. Seek out a community of Christians that love you and that you would feel happy to love. Because that's all, all that is what we were made for. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have made us to seek your glory and humility, giving up ourselves in love and service to others. But our sinful minds revolt against what we were created to do. Transform our hearts so that we would better love you. Amen.